Um, all right. My name is Peter. I'm the worship pastor here at Hiawatha. Thanks for uh, being here with us this morning. We are finishing up uh, a mini sermon series that we've been in for just the last three weeks on the book of Psalms. So not doing the whole book, but doing uh, a few Psalms here and there. And it worked out well to just do Psalm 7, Psalm 8, and then today, Psalm 9. And we're doing Psalms because we're setting up for the next longer sermon series that we have coming that starts next week, where we're going to preach through the books of First and Second Samuel and the reason that Psalms sets up for that, I mean, it comes after Samuel in the Bible, so you may be like, well, that doesn't make sense. But um, Psalms is kind of a, a compilation of a bunch of um, songs and poems written by a number of different um, artists, but King David is one of the main writers of the book of Psalms, and David is one of the main characters, one of the central characters in the books of First and Second Samuel. They didn't call it First and Second David, though. So you'll figure out why that is once we get there. But it's, David is one of the main characters that you need to know about. And he's a fascinating guy. And so reading some of the psalms that he wrote helps us kind of understand more about who he is and, um, and what he's like. He was a real person, so not like a character in a book, but actually a real historical person. Not like, you know, Robin Hood or King Arthur, but this is, this is King David. And I, I put up here, he's kind, of, he's kind of like the emo king. He's, a, he's an emo kid. So... What, what I mean by that is that he, he was a, a fierce warrior. He, he, uh, it, it says he fought and killed a lion and a bear when he was just a kid watching his flocks to protect them. And then, of course, you probably know David and Goliath. He, he killed a giant uh, Philistine warrior. Um, and he grew up and then won a ton of military battles as a, as a king, as an adult. But also, with all of that, he was also kind of a melancholy guy, a poet, a singer-songwriter, so, you know, kind of the, the kid who listened to Dashboard Confessional in high school and now really likes the National, if you understand those references, that's, that's kind of the type of guy he is. I imagine him, you know, like fighting in wars, you know, and he, they win this battle and all the soldiers and generals are like, let's go have a party. And he's like, I need to go home and write all this down and my feelings and get it out. And, you know, I've, I've got this great idea for, for a psalm based on what just happened. And they're like, all right, man, <laughs> that's fine. Um, that's the kind of guy he is, really a complex and multifaceted person. And so Psalm 9 that we're going to look at today is one of his. And before we actually read it, um, there's a couple of interesting things about just psalm structure in general that I want to point out. First of all, um, Psalm 9 is kind of coupled up with Psalm 10 that we're not going to read today, but you could read it this week if you want. In your Bible, you might see a footnote that says 9 and 10 might have actually originally been one psalm, and it got split at some point, and some of the older texts have it all as, as one. And it's an acrostic poem that stretches over nine and into ten. An acrostic, if you don't know, it's like when you take, you know, one letter of a word and you write a poem where the first line starts with each of those letters. And a lot of times with the acrostics that we find in psalms, it's alphabetical. So it's like you write the first line starting with A, you write the second line starting with B, and then you kind of go on and on. And that's part of why they think these went together is it seems like the acrostic goes from nine uh, over into 10 as well. But here's the interesting thing. Um, we're not going to see the Hebrew, but if you, if you read Hebrew, which I don't, but I learned this, it's not a perfect acrostic poem. It's kind of like it starts out as one, but then it almost like skips some letters or the letters just aren't obvious like some of the other ones are. Like maybe he underlined some of the letters and then didn't underline uh, others. And it seems like it was done on purpose that way. Like it was going to be an acrostic poem on 
purpose and then just decided, well, I'm not gonna follow the rules perfectly on this and we'll just write it. So um, an artistic choice that David made as he wrote this psalm. We'll come back to that idea a little bit later on. The other thing I want you to know is that a really common form of Hebrew poetry is called parallelism. You're gonna see this when we read the psalm. Parallelism is this idea that you, you say the thing that you want to say, and then immediately, the next line after it, you basically say the same thing again, just with a slightly different wording, or a slightly different twist, or maybe a little more specific than what you said in the beginning. Um, and we see this all over the place. It's kind of the standard way that Hebrew poetry is written. Um, it's not just in Psalms. You'll see it in other parts of the Bible as well. And I think it's an interesting question to ask, like, well, why? Why is that the form that we see a lot of this taking shape in, uh, in the poetic writings and in the prophecies. Like in Ezekiel 36, um, there's a section where God says, um, I, will, I will put a new heart and a new spirit in you. And then right after that, he says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It's the same idea, just a little bit different words and a little more specific, a, a more clear picture of the idea. And I think that maybe God just speaks that way. I think that's part of why we see this parallelism in Psalms and in the prophets. There are tons of examples. Even the, the Genesis account of creation has some repetition where it's like, he created them male and female, male and female, he created them. He created them, like it's this, this repetitive nature. And I think it's that God often repeats himself to us because we need to hear things more than once. Like we need to hear things twice to really understand it. We need a little bit of repetition, maybe even more than twice. And I also think, and this is, this is biological, that songs and poems sink into our brains a little bit more than just like, here's the data, here's the facts, just know it. But hearing it in lyric, hearing it in rhyme with some rhythm to it, um, it, it sinks in a little bit more. We're wired that way. And just like any good song, repetition is one of the keys to, to a good song. If you're uh, listening to the radio, something that has a good hook or a good chorus is the one that you grab onto and you want to hear it again. And that's, I think, part of what God is doing in, in some of these sections. Um, God himself is a creative. God himself is a poet and a singer. Uh, Zephaniah 3.17, probably the most famous minor prophets verse that you'll find in the Bible, um, says, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So God is a singer and a warrior, just like David, right? God is a warrior who saves people, and then he sings songs about how he saved them. So we're seeing a picture of who God is through the person of David, and in some of his writings, we're seeing uh, a little bit about God, a little bit about his son, Jesus. So keep those things in mind. Look for the parallelism. I'm going to read Psalm 9 all the way through now, and, uh, and we'll go from there. So the title of this sermon is called Sing It Again, and we're going to look at Psalm 9. Here's Psalm 9, starting in verse 1. David writes, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. 
He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion, and there rejoice in your salvation. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that forget God. But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. Arise, Lord. Do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know they are only mortal. That, that final line is so cool to me. It's like you've got this worship song, and then at the end, David's like, and let the nations know they are only mortal. It's like, whoa, wow. That's a great, that's a great image. Also, um, I kind of think joy to the world comes from this psalm. We got verse eight. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the nation, peoples with equity. Like, that so many good songs are, are, are lifted from the psalms, or at least portions of them. I was talking to Mary about this in between services too. So great. Okay, so David's psalm here is a psalm of praise, right? Um, he's, he's introducing us to God. He's praising God. He's talking about who God is. He's helping us get to know him. And also, I think David is sort of laying out a bit of a, a model for what the will of God is for his people, how God works in his life. So not only what is he like, but what does he do? What does he value? How does he relate to us? And I think this is a psalm that kind of comes from the other side of a conflict. It seems like it's written, at least to begin, as David looking and saying, God just did something, you know, and I saw him win a victory for his people. Whereas there are some psalms that are what we would call imprecatory psalms. So that's kind of David or the psalm writer saying, um, things are about to get really bad. There are enemies at my door. I could die at any second. And God, I just need your help right now. Show up and help me please the end. And there's not as much resolution. It's asking God to, you know, strike down the enemies. But this one um, kind of comes from the other side, where he's looking and saying, God just struck down my enemies, everybody. Let's, let's praise him. Think of it like when the Israelites are in front of the Red Sea, they haven't crossed it yet, and they look back and they're like, God, you got to show up or I'm about to die. God parts the waters. They walk through. The waters crash back down. And actually, in Exodus 15, Moses and his sister Miriam write and sing a song and say, you know, sing praise to the Lord. He triumphed and our enemies have been destroyed. And they, they sing a whole song about that in Exodus 15. It's kind of a cool sister chapter to this, to this one right here. So we're kind of seeing it from that side of things and not, not the... Uh, the uh, imprecatory psalm side of things. So David is, is writing things on both sides of conflicts like this. He's writing before uh, a big battle or when he's in dire distress, and he's also writing when he's been uh, given a victory and saved. So he's, he's demonstrating something here for us that I, I think we're, we can unpack. So first of all, David is looking back, like I mentioned. He's remembering. He's saying something has happened in the past. I'm looking back. I'm remembering it, and I'm praising God for it. 
Like it says here, for you have upheld my right and my cause, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. It's this you have, you have, you have. It's past tense, right? So, so David is saying, God just did something amazing in my life. God worked his justice. I saw it. He just brought me through. I'm here because of him, and I'm, I'm in a state of elation and praise over that. The best kind of knowledge comes from experience, right? So David has experienced something. It's not just that someone has said, hey, God's really good and he saves people, but actually David lived it just now. He's experienced it. And oftentimes, you know, book knowledge doesn't quite cut it. We, we learn best from experiencing something. Reading, a, reading a, book, a really detailed book about how to do brain surgery doesn't mean you could just go do it right away, but having some experience in learning and actually experiencing that teaching part of it can get you uh, prepared for that sort of thing. So experience, David has experienced it. He's looking back and saying, past tense, I've experienced it. I've experienced the grace of God and it has changed me. He has changed the person that I am. So I think the question then is, well, how, how can we experience the grace of God? And what Psalm 9 is telling us is, well, step one is you, you need to have a problem. You need to have an hour of need. You need to have something wrong in your life. That's step one. I heard a speaker one time that said, everybody wants to have a miracle in their lives, but not everybody's keen on having a problem or a pain or a suffering in their life. But that's actually the first thing that has to happen. So when David says, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble, he's saying, that was me. I was the oppressed one. I was in the time of trouble. That is when the grace of God came into my life. In my need, his power is displayed, is a lyric from one of the songs that we sing here. So in the, in the realm of Christianity, being needy is a good thing. Being needy is good. We need to know our need. When Jesus, in his earthly ministry, met up with some of the religious elite people, and they were pretty haughty, and they're like, you know, Jesus should probably be spending most of his time with us because we're kind of the best people for, like, you know, religious type stuff. And Jesus says, well, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And that was probably a tricky statement for a lot of people. Maybe it's tricky for us today. But when Jesus is saying that, he's being a little bit facetious because he's saying this, knowing that all people are spiritually sick apart from him. And he's poking at the religious people a little bit. And saying, oh, if you're too prideful to know that you are oppressed and in need and sinful, then no, no grace. That's, that's kind of the deal. You must recognize that you need help. We must recognize that we are broken people apart from Jesus. We have been oppressed by sin. Now, there's a good time in the sermon to just point out that I think a lot of times we as Christians can take promises like that and say, you know, well, okay, so when I'm oppressed, God will show up and he'll give me grace and he will give me victory, which is true. But it's easy for Christians to point out enemies in their own lives and apply passages like this outwards to other people or organizations in their lives. And I think we all do this sometimes. I know I do. Get into this mentality of like, well, being a Christian means I get my way. It's from Psalm 9 means I get my way. So, 
God is on my side. Um, it says, you know, he, he, uh, he's advocating for my rights, and he's a God of justice, and therefore this waiter got to give me a free drink because he screwed up. So I have, it, it happens. It must happen that way. Or maybe something like, quoting Psalm 9, everyone, endless ruin will overtake this insurance adjuster who denied my hail damage claim. I'm sorry if that is a little too close to home. I thought I should cut it between services, but I left it in. Or maybe it's politics. Politics, right? My political party. Or maybe it's just challenges at work. Like, I get the promotion because I'm a Christian, and I get my rights. Or maybe it's sports teams, right? Sports teams. Sports teams. God, my sports team is your sports team. So come on. My rights. The justice. Come on. But the Bible tells us not to do that. The Bible tells us that our enemy is not flesh and blood. This is from Ephesians 6. Our enemy is spiritual. And even more than that, our enemy is not outside of us. Our enemy is inside of us. Our enemy is the sin that clings to us. Our enemy is the death that that sin escorts us to. And then the fallen angel who deceives us into embracing those things and and just heading for them. We should not misuse biblical passages and promises like these for selfish gain. It's not about that. It's about so much more. It's so much richer than something like sports um, or, or challenges at work or something like that. Okay? So here's, here's David on the side of victory, looking back, praising God, seeing all this stuff. And then somewhere in the middle here, it flips around a little bit. So after remembering what God has done, we get this verse, verse 13, where all of a sudden David says, Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death. Now, I just got done saying that this is the side of victory, and he's, he's looked back and said, God has done all that. The cities are uprooted. The people are defeated and forgotten. And now David's like, well, I have these other enemies now. I have enemies that are persecuting me. So, David implies, actually, there are more enemies ahead. Even though the battle is over, there are these skirmishes still happening. There are these things that I turn around and look ahead. I'm like, oh, there's actually more trouble up there that I can see down the road. Trouble is still coming. And yes, we we do live in a fallen world, Christians, but God is going to keep working in our lives. And that's, that's what David is calling us to hear. He's saying, remember what has happened before and then believe looking ahead, that God is just, that he has already worked. We do not need to fear as we look ahead. We can have this expectant faith knowing that God is unchanging. So just because he vanquished all of these enemies back here does not mean that he'll just leave us alone going forward. Actually, God is unchanging. And like verse 18 says, he will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. That is a promise looking ahead to things that are coming. So What gives David, what gives us this kind of future confidence as we sort of turn from the battlefield to what lies ahead? What gives us that kind of future confidence? And that's where the part of the psalm that we didn't read originally comes in that Highland mentioned earlier. If we roll all the way back to the beginning of this psalm, we see that it has this verse zero, this little header that sits above Psalm 9, and it says this, for the director of music, to the tune of the death of the son, a psalm of David. So essentially, what David is saying here is, I'm writing some new lyrics, and I want them to be sung to an existing and known tune that's called the death of the son. So there's a, there's a 
a song or a tune out there that uh, is known, and he's sort of writing against that and then, and then putting these new lyrics to it. Um, I read a little bit about this. There are some ancient writings that, um, that actually translate it, not death of the sun, but death of the champion. Um, so that's a possibility. And going even further, there were a couple that sort of said, well, I think it really, that word um, has a little more nuance to it and could be, could be called the death of the one standing between the camps, which is way outside of how this is translated, but this is sort of going deep into the Hebrew nomenclature stuff. I, I don't know, but um, that's also out there. And because of that piece of it, there are some scholars who think the death of the son actually is, is referring back to uh, the David and Goliath story again. So the, the, the son or the champion or the one who stood between two camps and died is talking about Goliath. So it could be that David is being a little bit cute here, and he's like, well, there, someone wrote a song when I was a kid called The Death of the Son about when I defeated Goliath, and I'm going to write some new lyrics to that song about something else, a different battle or a different struggle that happened, but sing it to that, to that song from, from way back. Um, so we're going to hear the David and Goliath story unpacked, you know, in a few months here. I'm not going to go too much further into that, but it's pretty awesome to see this sitting here at, at the verse zero mark, you know, in the header, because this is this right here, this is what gives us that confidence to stand on the on the side of victory and turn and keep going. How can we have peace to praise God no matter what our circumstances are? How do we do that? The answer is in verse zero. The answer is found in verse zero of salvation. That's the cross of Christ. It's the, like not even one, it's like before one. It's like ground zero. The death of the son, the death of Jesus, the death of the champion, Jesus. Or the death of the one who stood between two sides of a conflict, not, not Israel and Philistines, but between us and God, a just God, where Jesus stood in between. Or how about the strong, undefeatable warrior who surprisingly did die and ushered in victory for the people who didn't fight at all? So if you think about it that way, Jesus is a lot like the young David who, who defeated the major enemy, but also kind of like Goliath, who surprisingly was the death that won the victory for us. And for us is important because verse 16 says, the Lord is known by his acts of justice, but the wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. So it's not a belief in our own strength. We don't turn and say, all right, I got to go down to the, to the next battle and, and get after it. David is, is clear to say the wicked are the ones who trust in the work of their own hands and it's, it ensnares them. Or one of the other verses say, you know, the, the wicked lay a net and then they get caught in it. It's, it's kind of this, this funny mockingness uh, to the idea that, that um, they can be strong in their own strength. But it's actually in Jesus, his acts of justice, that, that this kind of thing is possible, that we can really believe and rely on. So when, when David writes, endless ruin has overtaken my enemies, you have uprooted their cities and even the memory of them has perished. Here in the second half, looking ahead, he says, but God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. So our sin, our true enemy, is dead forever, remembered no more, as far as the east is from the west. And our hope, the hope of the afflicted, which is a person, which is Jesus Christ, is alive forever and will never perish. 
That's the good news of the gospel, looking, looking ahead to say, whatever might happen to me after this, I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is with me. And he will always be with me, never forget. So final is that victory, so assured is the continued grace that we can then live, move forward in total freedom. That's actually God's desire for us. If you want to know the will of God, it's that we would experience the joy and freedom that comes from knowing that he has done this for us and that he will never forget us. So what does that look like? What does it look like for us to to just live in light of that truth? What does it look like to live in total freedom as Christians? So we've looked back, we've looked ahead. Now we can move ahead and just live our lives as as forgiven people. And in thinking about this, um, I thought about the, the Minnesota United, the Loons. So we're big fans of the Loons in our house. Uh, we've been to a bunch of matches this year. We watch them on TV, and um, it's really fun. And with pro soccer, there's always a lot of kind of pomp and circumstance. They have songs and chants and smoke and flags and drums and all this stuff, right? Um, and the loons, when they win at home, which doesn't happen very often, but when they do, uh, they have this tradition where they, where they play a certain song, and then everybody in the stadium sings along with the song. It's kind of their victory song, and it's Wonderwall by Oasis. If you don't get it, that's fine. Those of us who get it, it's awesome, but I know a lot of people are like, Wonderwall by Oasis, but it's great. So we all sing that song. Everybody sings along, um, but there's another kind of informal tradition that I like even more, even though Wonderwall is a great song. There's a tradition that I like more, and that's when they win, the players go over to the sidelines, and they scoop up their kids, and they have like toddlers, like two and three-year-olds, and they bring them out on the field and let them run around. And it's so adorable. It's amazing. And so like these two and three-year-olds are out there like stumbling around on the field, and the crowd is cheering, the flags are waving. And then, and then the dads will like get the soccer balls out and put them in front of the goal, and they're like, go ahead, kick, kick the goal. And so like this, these kids will sort of like shuffle over and be like, I don't even know what's happening, and like move their foot like this, and the ball rolls in the goal. And it's right in front of the, like, the big supporter section where all the rowdiest fans are. And so like, when the kid sets up, they'll be like, oh. And then the kid kicks it, and they're like, ah. And they just cheer, and they're throwing stuff, and all this stuff. And it's, like, it's as loud as if we won the World Cup. I'm serious. It's so, so adorable. And they're babies. Like, they don't know anything that's going on. And the, uh, the dads who've been playing this whole 90-plus minute game pick up their kids, and they like, hold them up. Like, like they just, they're the champion. And uh, that goal didn't count. That did not go on the scoreboard. No, it, would, it was just nothing, really. I mean, yeah, they kicked the ball into the goal, but it didn't change the outcome of the game. And, you know, the kid didn't even come out on the field until the game was over and won, and it, they didn't win it. I mean, there was the sweat and bodily punishment of Michael Boxel there who, who won this game, and uh, if that kid had run out during the game, first of all, they'd be useless. But second of all, they'd probably get hurt, like badly hurt. These guys are huge, and they're wearing cleats. Um, but here, look, they, they, they're brought out on the field. The game's already over. The battle's already won. Their dad won it. And now they're out there just in joy and, and in freedom, having the time of their life. Think about that for a second. Think about who won the victory for you. For David, he wasn't a toddler. He's like a mighty warrior. He won tons of major battles for his people. And yet, in Psalm 9, he's saying, you have, you have, you have. It's the heavenly father who set a ball down in front of an empty net for me. 
you know, that's, that's about the extent of what I did, David says. Um, the, the game's taken care of. The battle's taken care of. The opponent is gone. And here's the cool thing. These kids who come out, these toddlers, they don't worry about how they're going to do out there. They don't, they don't worry if they're going to stumble or step on the ball and fall down. They don't wring their hands if they kick the ball and it goes sideways and away from the net. They, don't, they do not care. They don't feel pressure to perform for the fans. They don't feel pressure to perform for their dads. This is not their dad saying, all right, I won this one, kid. Here's the ball. Next team's coming out. You, got, you, you take the next one. It's not, because that would be bad. Those kids are loved, and they're completely free, and they're out here in joy and freedom. They know the game is over. They're invited to participate in the victory, and they're full of joy over that, full of joy. Think about this picture. What if we Christians had a proper understanding of what our redeemed lives really are? Like those kids, we are on a spiritual field of play that's already littered with confetti. Do we live as though we need to pick up that ball and start sweating it out for another victory? And if we don't, our Heavenly Father will be disappointed in us? Or do we live as though we're the kids joyfully just dribbling the ball around while our victorious Father just beams in joy at the freedom that He provided for us and at the works of grace that He prepared and enabled us to do? That's living. That's moving ahead in the life of a Christian. It is not our efforts that lead to his joy. That's cold religion. But instead, it's his effort that leads to our joy and our freedom. That is grace. That is the gospel. Do you see the difference there? Because it's a big one. So like David, if a crowd is cheering for us, they're cheering for him. And like David is saying, he did it. He did it. He did it. He will continue to do it. I'm out here in freedom and joy, praising God for what he has done. That's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel. We can't live freely unless we believe that the battle's over. And we can't believe that the battle's over unless it is, unless Christ has died for us. So we need to remember what Jesus has done. We need to believe in it. We need to just live in freedom. And then, guess what comes next? We've got to repeat it. We've got to sing it again. Look at, look at the end of this psalm here. It says, The wicked go down to the realm of the dead, all the nations that, what? Forget God. But God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. So we forget the gospel. We forget that this is true. But God is a God of love, and he does not just let us go. God remembers us and sings the gospel to us again. We forget stuff all the time. We forget to put all the letters in the acrostic alphabet poem that we're writing. And that's okay. Because God remembers us. We need parallelism. We need to be told the same thing again with slightly different words. Look at verse 1. David writes, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. And then verse 11, sing the praises of the Lord and throne in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he's done. It's the same verse, again, with different words, but the same idea. That's what we need. We need to hear it again. We need to hear the chorus again. We need the God from Zephaniah to sing over us again, every day. 
Becky and I were at a concert last Sunday night, the Postal Service, um, great band. They have one album, that's it. And so at their show, they played that one album beginning to end, and then they were done, and then they came out for an encore, and they played one of those songs again. <laughs> it was the best one. It was such great heights. It was the best song, and guess what? No one booed. No one was like, oh, no, that, we heard it already. We don't want it again. No, everyone was like, yes, again. Oh, acoustic version. Yes. Oh, so cool. And nobody was, was bent out of shape about that. We loved hearing it again. We loved hearing it in a new way. And then they played a cover after that, a song they didn't even write, and we loved it. It was great. It was Depeche Mode. It was great. Um, nobody booed. This is what we Christians are invited to. We're invited to get excited about the same song again. And in fact, we need it. We need the repeat. Don't forget the repeat. So we remember the total victory that Jesus won at the cross. We believe that he will continue to save us and sustain us forever, no matter what. Because of that, we can live in total freedom, knowing that God loves us unconditionally, and then we forget all of that. And then we have to repeat it. We need it repeated again to us. We need the repetition. We need the parallelism. But the good news is that that's God's specialty. Like I said, God speaks this way. God speaks in repetition. God tells us the gospel, and then he tells it again. He wants us to hear it again. Our prayer should be, God, don't let me get tired of it. Make me hum the gospel under my breath all day long. Let it permeate my life. Let it lead to a life of joy and freedom, because I need to know that I'm loved unconditionally, and then I need to be told that again. We're on the other shore of that river. The battle is over. We can have that joy now. We can remember that now. In 2023, we can look back at the cross of Christ. David looked ahead at it. It was future. For us, it's past. We see it. We can read it. The words of Jesus are there. So that's the invitation. Remember, believe, then live, and repeat again. Don't miss that repeat. Ask for it. Look back at the cross. Look ahead in joy. Move ahead in freedom. And repeat to yourself, this is the gospel. Sing it again and again. We need it that way. We need to remember. And Psalm 9 invites us to that. So when we remember what Jesus did, one of the ways that we do that is by taking communion together. It says it right on front, the front of the table here. Do this in remembrance of me. So the, the invitation now is to not something brand new that's never happened before. This is, this is to remember Jesus at the cross. And what he's done for us is to come forward in total freedom and joy, knowing that I, I get to just have this food. I get to be sustained by the gospel. That's all. There's nothing else here. And this is because of Christ. So the, the night before Jesus died, he had a Passover meal with his disciples, and he picked up unleavened bread like this, and he cracked the bread, and it made a loud cracking sound, and he handed it to his disciples. He said, this bread is my body, which will be broken for you. And when you eat bread like this, remember what I've done. And then he took a cup of wine and poured it out and said, this wine is the, the new covenant in my blood. This is my blood poured for you. And when you drink wine like this, remember me and remember the victory that I'm about to win at the cross. And they just passed it around. They, they just could have it because he has earned that for them. He has given his body and his blood so that we can be saved and remember. Churches all around the world are called to this. Just come, eat, remember what Jesus did, and believe. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we worship. So
In a minute, the band's going to come up and play some songs. As they play, anytime, just feel free to come forward down the center aisle, break that bread, pour some wine or juice, and remember what Jesus did again. You've probably taken communion before. If you're a believer, do it again. We need it again. And, it's, and you are welcome to it. If you're not a believer today, you can be. You can believe that Jesus has done this for you, and then you can come forward and take communion as well. We'll have a couple people up front, too, who would be uh, more than willing to pray with you. If there's anything that you'd like prayer for, I will be up here. Um, take advantage of that if you like, and just celebrate what Jesus has done, the ultimate victory and the, and the true freedom that he's granted us uh, in his son by his body and his blood. And remember, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for, for being that champion for us, for being the one who fought the battle that earned our salvation. And we as your children get to just share in it, share in that joy, be a part of it because we're loved. And we do not need to feel like the next battle is ours because the ultimate battle at the cross is over and won. We stand on the field littered with confetti. We are the loved, unconditionally children of God. I pray today as we share communion together, as we worship together, that you would remind us, that you would sing your grace over us again. We need it. We need to be reminded. I thank you that you speak that way to us, that you are patient and loving, and you remind us of who you are. I pray that you would do that now. Holy Spirit, soften us, allow us to hear your voice, um, and, uh, and worship you today. In your name, amen.